World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. George Floyd, Belly Majinga. Racism is a health risk. Today's podcast had been planned for some time. We'd been looking for a suitable date to sit down and speak with our guests, Professor Anne Pollock from Global Health and Social Medicine here at King's College London, and her research colleague, Dr. Melissa Creary from the University of Michigan. As it turned out, we sat down on June 1st in the midst of protests demanding justice for the killing of George Floyd and justice for communities of colour. This podcast, and in fact this School of Global Affairs, aims to tackle global challenges from differing global perspectives, including those perspectives that have been marginalised or silenced. In today's episode, we focus on the US and how racism is having a direct impact on health outcomes, but we also discuss how this conversation has relevance here in the UK. We go on to speak about why universities have a key role in responding to the need for change and what real change might mean. In our second episode, we look directly at how racism is a health risk here in the UK. And we speak with two former King students about the work they are doing to raise awareness of health inequalities within marginalised communities. Now, as a school, we undertake research and we, of course, conduct teaching. But we are also a community and many in our community are hurting and they are tired of having to explain why. It is critical that those of us with privilege listen, that we learn and that we act. We know we have so much more to do. So one final thing. Each episode, we release a list of reading materials and research. And today's episode, we will do just that. But we are also going to share with you a list of resources put together by our community's Equality and Diversity Committee. And so to today's episode, racism is a health risk. I started by asking Professor Ann Pollock how this crisis has highlighted existing health inequalities within our society. I think that uh, what we've really seen in the COVID-19 pandemic is that we see a situation in which ongoing inequalities are intensified. And the character of the disease really um, makes that particularly stark, as does the nature of transmission. So really understanding who is most at risk of contracting the novel coronavirus, so who's exposed by being healthcare workers, by being delivery workers, by having other kinds of essential jobs, by living in residences with those folks, that's one piece. But another piece is that whether or not you get the virus and whether or not you get sick are two really different questions and how sick you get. Right? And we know that the underlying health conditions that people experience really contribute a lot to the impact of COVID-19 on those individuals. And so we know that people who already have conditions like hypertension and diabetes are much more likely to have poor outcomes in COVID-19. And I think it's really important to really emphasize that those underlying conditions themselves are products of racism. So the same social world that creates unequal distribution of all diseases really plays a stark factor in things like diabetes and hypertension, especially as one contributor to cardiovascular disease. And so whether that's the stress of racism or whether that is the increased burdens of of access to food, food deserts, all of those kinds of things that we hear so much about, right? 
the neighborhood in which you live, the family in which you live, and the society in which you live all shape whether you're more likely to get something like diabetes or hypertension. And then that in turn shapes how at risk you are of having COVID-19. Melissa, when we spoke before this podcast, we discussed that here in the UK, it feels as if often the kinds of race-based health inequalities on show during this pandemic have been presented as kind of unique to COVID-19. Now, I think as you and Anne will point out, this is this is not the case. But you also pointed out the fact that the issues and uh, challenges raised by COVID-19 were not a surprise to communities, that they were very much on the radar. How much do you see this as part of a wider story of health inequality in the US in your case? In the United States, I think that um, absolutely COVID-19 was just another case that exposed existing fault lines in our system. And people were, as you mentioned, not shocked or surprised that disproportionate burden fell on communities of color throughout the United States. I think that what Anne spoke to earlier in terms of the existing structural inequalities that racism plays a heavy hand in definitely showed itself to be the case for how this burden transferred themselves into these communities. And so when we're thinking about who is getting exposed and the reasons why they're getting exposed and what makes them more vulnerable, all of those things are undergirded with systemic oppression, systemic racism. When we think about the poor quality that communities of color already have access to when it comes to when they interface in the healthcare system, the fact that they interface with the healthcare system less frequently, and often there, there's a cycle of distrust that's there, which causes these communities of colors to want to avoid the healthcare system to begin with. That's just one example of how these existing inequalities kind of just came to bear when it came to COVID-19. COVID-19 did an excellent job of really exposing and getting us to talk more about these fault lines that have existed in the U.S. for a very long time. One thing that I would add to what Melissa is saying about the distrust issue is that I think that it's important to emphasize that at the same time that many patients may have well-grounded distrust of the healthcare system, we also have to deal with the fact that the healthcare system doesn't always trust patients of color so that we see that people's concerns are not necessarily taken as seriously by healthcare providers. And this is a huge barrier. So, you know, that um, if someone comes in and is part of the majority group that is the most privileged, then their concerns are often taken more seriously by the medical staff than minoritized patients. And of course, this layers on top of each other as well. So that, you know, if someone's first language is not English, if someone is older, if someone is obese, there might be many, many things that make physicians and other healthcare providers less likely to take patients seriously. And we know that this is a real barrier for many, many patients of color, both in the United Kingdom and in the United States. Well, and I'm Melissa, I mean, how willing do you think we've been? Because I feel like the conversation often, and again, I think this is coming from a UK perspective, but I think it's interesting to contrast the two, which is that we've often been willing to have the conversation about race-based health inequality and how that links to the economics and, and kind of social deprivation. But we haven't explicitly said actually racism. You know, racism is a factor at play here. 
do you think that could be something that comes out of this crisis? Do you think, Melissa, that had already started in the US, that actually the, we were talking about racism as a factor? Absolutely. I think that public health practitioners have claimed that racism is a public health issue for some years now. And there have been scholars specifically trying to tackle racism as a piece of the structural institutional barriers um, when it comes to access to good health and good health care. And I think that this very current moment with what's going on in the United States with the recent, well, I wouldn't say recent, but the most recent highlights on police brutality, there's this very interesting intersection that's happening here where we see how systemic racism has endangered lives far into the reaches of societies of where we live, work, and play. So, you know, whether it is the fact that communities of color have lower medium incomes and then access to lack of an economic cushion, which will then prevent them from sheltering in place in ways to properly avoid the virus, whether it's that, whether it is the fact that communities of color that have higher rates of asthma because of where they happen to live are full of toxins, which um, exacerbate and then make them more vulnerable for COVID-19, whether it is, uh, you know, the fact that COVID-19 and the fact that we have to mask or not mask has created a new kind of stop and frisk situation in several parts of the United States. I think all of these things are being highlighted as racism being the cause for disproportionate burden, but also just in general death to the Black community in particular. Um, And so racism, I think, is definitely being called out more. And I think that I do think that COVID-19 has allowed for that conversation to happen. And the scaffolding of the recent events in society when it comes to police brutality, I think that our attention is being heightened. When we're attached to our phones a lot more right now, we can't go anywhere. And I think that we can't turn away in this moment. And I definitely think that COVID-19 has spurred us to really face what's happening in larger realms of society outside of COVID-19. So it's all intersecting in this really interesting way. And we're seeing it play out before our eyes right now. Yeah, I think that that's so true. I think that one of the things that is maybe a bit distinctive of COVID-19 is that it's so obviously related to social and economic structures that's been unavoidably visible from the start. So, or at least from the start in the United Kingdom and the United States, perhaps not um, from the start in China. But as soon as it came to these countries, we were already starting to see that, you know, that who could shelter in place and who was still exposed was very much fissures that are both about class, but also are racialized, and um, that the living conditions in which people were sheltering in place were radically different in ways that are both racialized and class. And maybe there's something about that kind of awareness of the differential exposure and the differential privilege of isolation that, uh, you know, kind of for those who can afford it, maybe has made it a little bit easier to see that it often is that this is a social and political structure that is distributing disease, not something that's inherent to our bodies. And I think that one of the real challenges always in public health kind of discourse around inequalities is to remember that social determinants of health are made, right? So they're 
sometimes I think that we get into this space where we're just like modeling statistics and putting in all the characteristics of all of our variables. And, um, you know, so kind of like plotting in demographic characteristics or other characteristics and using those to make cool graphs and not necessarily understanding that it's the imposition of social inequalities that actually makes those. It's not just kind of social determinants of health that just as patterns, oh, cool patterns. No, this is inequality and injustice that we're seeing. And it may be that the coincidence, right, of real visibility around police violence and real visibility about disease experience might help to make that a little bit more visible. That it is not about race causing disease, but about racism causing disease. And that living in a structurally racist society is what it is that makes the disease patterns that we see. I think one thing that might be helpful also for the podcast audience is to really think through how it might be that racism might cause disease in general. So both Melissa and I had a very formative teacher in Kamara Jones. I mean, Melissa at a more junior stage of her education and for me much later, but we intersected in Atlanta with Kamara Jones, who was the head of a working group on racism and health at the CDC and has done lots of other things. And she's also a epidemiologist and a physician, and she provides really helpful outlines of the ways in which racism shapes health. So really emphasizing that there are institutional factors that are large that have to do things with how our housing is organized and the structures of education and the structures of housing and the structures of the cities in which we live. There's also interpersonal. So how we engage with healthcare practitioners, how we engage with mortgage brokers, how we engage with so many people. Police, of course, being an important one, and then also internalized. So how we incorporate ideas from the broader racist society into our own understandings of health and what we deserve and what we can expect. And I think that, you know, when you really start to pull apart those levels, COVID-19 provides a very powerful window into those levels. Melissa, we're recording this on June 1st in the United States, where you are, and across the world, people are marching to demand justice for the killing of George Floyd and justice for communities of colour. How important is it that we see the health disparities on show during the COVID-19 outbreak as part of a wider legacy of racism and injustice? And if it is important, what does that mean for how we tackle this health inequality? I think that what Anne points out with social determinants of health and what we're seeing presently with COVID-19 is that it's not about biology, right? It's about the intersecting realms of the social as well as the, the biological. So it's not that any population is biologically more susceptible to COVID-19, but there are certainly vulnerabilities there. And so those vulnerabilities when it comes not to just COVID-19, but this larger history of why we see disproportionate burden of disease, certain diseases in certain populations is definitely due to this larger political, economic, and social milieu in which we're all living in. And so absolutely, when we think about the injustices that are happening today, whether it be about George Floyd or Eric Garner or you know, the list is quite long. When we think about all of these injustices, you know, we have to think about the connections to place, the connections to access, the connections to power. And whether it's about those accesses 
two things, those things um, when it comes to, you know, perceptions of who's deserving and what belonging looks like uh, in terms of citizenship. That's one thing when it comes to like police brutality. But then when we transfer that to what that looks like for health, the history of testing on um, Black bodies, the history of, you know, research practices that are unethical, all of these histories that have been laid out have led to a current contemporary model of why communities have such distrust for the healthcare system or for research institutions. And it's exactly why we see how COVID-19 can play itself out. So when we think about the fact that high-risk jobs mean that you will have increased exposure to COVID-19, we have to think historically about why those high-risk jobs become available to communities of color. Um, and that is due to income access and education, which is then due to redlining practices and how education is tied to zip code and where you live, and how all of this has been embedded in racist practices that have been institutionally embedded. So there's just this complex network of injustice based on um, inferiority and superiority and who in the creation of these lands and institutions, how people have thought of who deserves what. And so we can't deny that history, and we see how that history plays itself out in 2020. Yeah, I absolutely agree with Melissa that it's really important to understand how all of these existing health inequalities are continuous with a profound history in which some bodies were considered to be at once a source of economic value and yet devalued as humans. Right. I mean, this is a very old story of the British Empire and it's the location of wealth in the bodies of enslaved people. And we see that now with the essential workers who are described as sacrificial. Um, you know, how is it that those that we describe as essential are the ones who are somehow not given the same kind of full humanity as other workers are, right, in the lockdown, or other people are? And I think that that is a legacy of slavery. But at the same time, I think it's really important to remember that it's not just the history is kind of there, and so we are inevitably following it. The history is constantly recreated in the present, right? So we are constantly having structures that reinforce the valuation of some lives over other lives and the valuation of health for some over the valuation of health for others. And I think that this is so clear when we think about things like how the emphasis is really on a lot of advanced biomedical technologies, when we know that we can have tremendous impact on people's health by things like improving housing conditions, improving other elements of public health, improving the number and quality of medical personnel even, um, somehow gets to be overshadowed by uh, an emphasis on kind of medical gadgets and medical expertise as the solution. And I think that this too is part of a legacy of slavery, but it's one that is recreated. So this idea that we're going to ignore the things that we know keep people alive, well, and in community, and instead focus on some kind of elusive goal. Obviously, that's not to say that we shouldn't develop high-tech medicine. Of course we should. But there's just something um, you know, that's really profound about this idea that, okay, we're going to be able to spend all of this money and resources on potentially some high-tech cures when we know that so much of what creates the underlying bodily inequalities is low-tech. 
And that's a question of political will. That's not a medical question. That's a political question. And we could change those. So just because it has a long history doesn't mean that it's inevitable. We could change that history. And we have considerably, right? So because of social justice movements, there has been considerable transformation, but just not enough. And I think that that's what these social justice movements that are happening today are arguing as well, right? So they say that, okay, the um, emancipation got us this far, civil rights got us this far, where are we at? How can we actually create this world in which all people are authentically valued? And we'll be able to see that through their capacity to flourish. I'd be interesting to see, and, and I know that it's a question for all of us, you know, how is COVID-19 going to change us when it comes to ideas around justice and the more vocality around making sure that people are being served in the ways in which they deserve? And I, and I know in the public health community, there's a lot of optimism about COVID-19 being the tipping point in which um, actual change starts to happen. History has shown us that lots of other places, points in time could have been tipping points, you know, should have been tipping points. And so I find that I'm personally more pessimistic about how much change will come out of this moment. But also, if we look and see what's happening across the U.S. and how protests are even in the name of George Floyd spreading internationally now, it does spark some hope about how change can occur because change doesn't occur until the people start to react and start to mobilize and strategize and begin to get the attention of those that are in power. And so what we're seeing, I think, in the form of protest, COVID-19 is a part of that. You know, I think COVID-19 in this moment was the catalyst in terms of people being captive audiences to see how the disproportionate burden was occurring in their communities in a way that I think that if we were going about our lives and, you know, what was once normal, that it would have easily been diluted. The message would have easily been diluted. And so now, you know, it's been in our face and it's been one thing after the other and it's been this eruption. And so like Anne has said, history has shown us in, uh, across different points that we've reached these tipping points and we've had these, you know, explosive reactions and then there have been changes and they have been incremental, but there have been some changes. And so maybe we will see some change to come from this. History, though, has shown itself to be that when it comes to the innovations that Anne was talking about, you know, when it comes to vaccine development, that's going to be happening down the line that we're still going to have to counter with the fact of who's going to be able to get access to those vaccines. Will people want to take those vaccines based on the levels of distrust and racism that have already been shown institutionally? Will actual need be accounted for? How will we measure between you know, the hypervaluing of black bodies when it comes to research and making sure that we attach the same amount of value when it comes to care and treatment. All of these things, history has shown us how innovative racism is, but also history has shown us that there is change that's possible. So 
while I remain pessimistic, there is still a kernel of hope there in terms of what we look like when all of this is, when all the dust has settled. I think there's just such an important aura there that you've really highlighted, Melissa, of saying it's not that COVID-19 leads to the change, it's that a political mobilization in this moment could lead to a change. I think that, I mean, as I've mentioned to both of you, I am just finishing um, the revisions of this book that I'm writing. It's called Sickening, Racism, Health Disparities, and Biopolitics in the 21st Century. And it starts with the postal workers who died in the anthrax attacks in 2001. And that was another moment in which there was this sense of, okay, Americans are now all in this together. Our differences don't matter as much. And we saw in the anthrax attacks and the way that care was allocated and not allocated But that wasn't true. And it quickly became true that post 9-11 America would continue its inequalities that had been there before. And that um, that this idea that, okay, now the United States is not safe really was covering up the fact that the United States had never been safe for huge members of its population. And that, you know, that there was a real lie at the heart of 9-11 and the way that Americans understood it and which was quickly revealed not to be the case. I mean, so there could have been a moment for reconsideration then. And it was missed. The second chapter looks at Hurricane Katrina, which I think is another one of these moments that was really held up by public health communities to do this kind of work. Like, okay, now the whole world sees that there are impoverished people in the United States, that this inequality is just so palpable and egregious and unavoidable and can't be missed. And yet it's been hard to really transform that awareness of the profound injustices that Hurricane Katrina really revealed. You know, the unnatural disaster of Hurricane Katrina really revealed for us. It really didn't have the transformative impact that people in public health and in other fields were hoping for, that, okay, now people will see. So I think maybe what we need to do is wait less for now people will see. They haven't seen it yet. They may not see But it's possible that the political mobilization will make them, okay, now they have to act. Now change is necessary. Melissa, we just had a webinar with the King's Brazil Institute. And one of the things that came up in that conversation was that the same communities that had served and worked throughout this crisis, whether that was in grocery stores or as care workers, that these same communities were now the first to be asked to go back to work. And in many cases, in a sense, being forced to go back to work through the removal of welfare or through the fact that their employer had now been told that they must reopen. How big an issue is this in the U.S.? I think the economic disparities that are certainly present in Brazil are present in the U.S. as well. When we think about who's deemed an essential worker, what we're thinking about are people who are employed to serve a certain sect of people. For instance, Georgia, a southern state in the United States, without ever getting to the point of the curve being flattened and after having a late start of a shelter-in-place order, they quickly reversed that to have under the auspices of you know, stimulating the economy. And what that looks like was nail salons being open, 
tattoo parlors being open, uh, hair salons being open. And so it seemed very clear that there were people who were in the lower echelons of service provision who served a higher echelon of people being made to put at risk. And there were lots of other things happening, right? There was talk that this would then be able to make sure that the state would have to avoid unemployment by making sure that people are, again, working But it's really interesting to think about the kinds of places that the state deemed essential in that moment. We've been hearing with the protests about liberty and people wanting their freedoms. The thing that comes up the most is, I want my hair cut. It's really quite astounding when we think about the kinds of things that people are clamoring for in in the name of presumed liberty. But what that means is that they may get their hair cut and then they go home, right? So they have a 30-minute interaction and then they've gotten the service that they've needed and they go home. But then the person who they are demanding cut their hair and who the state then sanctions must cut their hair once these provisions are lifted, it's really interesting to think about who is being served and who is serving. When we're thinking about expendable versus essential you know, our governor made, um, not ours, not, I lived in, I lived in Atlanta, Georgia for 20 years. So it's hard for me st- to not, to still claim Atlanta. So what happened in, in Georgia, you know, was allegedly made a public health informed decision, right? And that's a whole other conversation because it was later found to be that the data was misleading and that indeed the decision that was made was likely not one that was public health informed, right? That's one thing. But another thing that was said was that we have the hospital capacity. So if something goes awry, then we'll be able to catch the cases as they fall because our healthcare system right now has the beds and has the capacity to deal with potential increased cases. Meaning we're not concerned about the prevention of potential infection, but on the back end, when you get infected, we'll be able to potentially take care of you. So absolutely, this idea of a workforce that is thought to be sacrificial, thought to be expendable, thought to be those uh, not as deserving for protection are being put on the line when it comes to these early sanctions for people to return to work. And again, that's in addition to the people who never left work the people who are doing childcare, uh, the people who work in grocery stores, the people who are part of the transportation industry. All of these jobs are filled with bodies of color who are then put on the line in terms of exposure. And of course, systemic racism has been built into the system of, again, who does the serving, who provides the service, and who receives the service. And, you know, there's been an obvious and long history dating back to slavery based on, you know, the thought processes of deservingness around protection when it comes to this contemporary moment. I think there's an additional element there as well of how this response of, well, we have the hospital capacity, so therefore it's okay to let people get Mm. sick. I think that that actually follows really logically from the flatten the curve discourse that was so prominent early on in the COVID-19 pandemic. 
we were given a kind of set of tools to think about health that was very numerical and where people were very interchangeable. People were just numbers and we could just think about them. Uh, you know, they're just, it's just about like how many people on a curve and they often were represented as dots, right? So you're in a lot of these graphics and they had no kind of sense of what are the characteristics of these people? What are their baseline health characteristics? What are their access to care characteristics? And of course, this is so much more intensified in the United States than it is in the United Kingdom, because, you know, in the United States, for many people, access to health insurance is tied to their employment. And so unemployment is tremendously high stakes in that kind of situation, right? So to lose both your income and your access to care at the same time in the face of a pandemic, right? I mean, that is different from counting a number of hospital beds and from kind of counting a number of people and from counting an R, you know, so, okay, the R not this or that. I mean, you know, this is actually existing humans who have different capacities and constraints and different embodied conditions. And, and I think that the real strong preoccupation with numbers is in a way related to the preoccupation with high tech here. So, you know, the, the desire to move to an abstraction, to move to numbers, not really understanding that, like, you know, different ways of relating to bodies are different and different bodies are different. And so we really need to understand a lot of the risks that middle class people worry about, about the risks of them shopping or the risks of them going for a jog in the park, get so much attention. And that can maybe obscure the ways in which, you know, the real risk comes from far more intimate forms of connection that are related to care and of the reproductive labor that is often hidden. Um, that's, of course, gendered, right? A lot of the labor that we think of as women's work. So caring for the ill, cleaning up after the ill, all of those things. So, you know, that are, of course, when it's done by a doctor, um, you know, gets recognized as care in a different kind of way than it does when it's done by ordinary women. But it's both with gendered and racialized in ways that matter so that we need to understand um, you know, kind of get beyond preoccupation with curves and counting um, and really think about what is the embodied experience. And then also, you know, this idea that, um, okay, well, we have the hospital capacity. Well, first of all, we have to recognize that we've had massive disinvestment in both the United States and in the United Kingdom, massive disinvestment in capacity. And so that that's its own problem, right? So a decade of austerity has left us in a dire strait. But also, not everyone, when they go into that hospital, is going to get equal care. So recognizing that um, kind of hospital capacity in the abstract is not enough to actually address the health needs of, of all of us. I guess this moment and everyone's been sharing things on social media, reacting in kind of live time to what's happening as part of this protest against the killing of George Floyd. You know, universities have spoken a lot about their role and the needs. At least King's is talking a lot about uh, its role in kind of decolonizing the curriculum and various different things. And you mentioned prioritizing gizmos and gadgets and biotech and all that kind of thing. How important is it that actually universities and our, and our communities that we work in actually respond in this moment and actually take some concrete action? I mean, what might that look like? I mean, it's just so important. I think that it's been so profound for a lot of the module conveners, as we call them here, um, academics, faculty, as we call them in the United States, 
I think that a lot of them didn't realize that um, until they've started now to have an experience of teaching online, I don't think that they realized the extreme differences of what home looks like for so many of our students. So some of our students can learn online in perfectly comfortable conditions and, you know, it's a perfectly kind of feasible and practicable thing. But one of the things that the COVID-19 moment has, um, or the, you know, the lockdowns in particular have really shown is that universities haven't taken seriously enough the fact that not all students have even a laptop. And so, you know, lots of students had been relying on the computer lab in order to write their essays. And now they're trying to write their essays on their phones. Not all students have reliable internet at home. Not all students' parents' houses have enough space for them to be. Not all people have home housing situations in which everybody has their own room so that they can have a quiet place to do their research and their writing and their thinking. You know, that not everybody has this kind of imagined middle-class existence that I think undergirds a lot of assumptions about education. And we need to take that really seriously going forward, you know, so that as we consider the very real essential health needs of the students and staff of King's, we also have to remember that the online world is not some kind of equal utopia, that we come to the online world with really profound inequalities. And that if we're not intentional about it, going online exacerbates and intensifies those inequalities and effectively excludes people who are exactly those students who have the most hope for decolonizing global health, decolonizing the curriculum, decolonizing public health. And if we move to this kind of online environment without taking the needs of those students seriously, we will have really gone backwards in terms of authentic diversity and inclusion. And so then it would really be a tragedy for this moment that has already extracted such a toll on the bodies of racialized members of our communities or of minoritized members of the communities, we might say, then pile onto that intensified exclusions from the education that it takes in order to participate in transforming the world. Which is not to say that all the transformations of the world are done by global health experts or even by our students or, or anything like that, but we do need to have, you know, a really authentic, inclusive environment around these conversations about global health and social medicines, including at places like King's. And that is also a part of attacking the racism that is inherent in global medicine today. When I think about academic institutions and their role, it's hard for me to see past the lip service, which is often accompanied with diversity, equity, and inclusion. These are institutions that were created specifically around knowledge production coming from certain bodies. And those bodies were not communities of color. We're not students of color. We, we have recently opened these doors to allow access to education for a broader swath of populations across religion, across race, across ethnicity. But at the end of the day, you know, it's still a master's tool. And so I am hesitant to think about the kind of change that I think we need coming from academic spaces. And academic spaces are currently created not to support the work and research of the radical kind of decolonization that needs to happen. While I do think this moment, again, kind of puts a spotlight on what we can do as people in higher learning to increase the attention and be more intentional about it, 
I see in my own realm how we are struggling to let this moment by while still paying attention and being attentive to the compassionate piece that's needed not just for students, but, you know, for faculty who are all being affected in different kinds of ways. It's really interesting because, you know, COVID-19 has called for all this rapid release of grants and a rapid, you know, kind of review system for, for manuscripts. And it's been interesting to see how fast we can turn out this knowledge in this moment and how we're able to prioritize certain things over others in this moment. And so it makes me think like, okay, well, we have this capability, right? We have this capability to really be intentional about what we prioritize, what we give money to. And, you know, people have been saying, well, COVID-19 is actually going to pave the way for perhaps more funding to go towards things like structural inequity, which tends to, you know, be not funded highly because it's hard to study um, and get down to the causes of um, structural. And, well, not it's hard to study, but it's, it's hard to get funding. And so the, you know, these academic institutions absolutely have a responsibility and role. But when we think about who are typically the deans and who are typically the department chairs and who are typically getting hired for faculty and who does the work of actually investigating the injustices, normally that falls on scholars of color scholars who are othered in different kinds of ways. And while absolutely the academy gives a certain amount of freedom in terms of how people can prioritize the things that they want to do, you know, I think it's important to understand that that freedom and its air quotes with freedom um, comes at a cost. And so there have been plenty of instances of what we see playing out on the streets, playing out in COVID-19, that plays out in the academy as well, you know, particularly for, for scholars of color. So again, you know, there's a kernel of hope for what we can do. And I think the most important part is realizing that there is a role for the academy, that there is a role for us to provide a sort of comfort system and a different level of security for our students. For us to understand, as Anne was saying, that technology is not an equalizer. It does not promote inclusion the way we think that it might, but it actually can exacerbate modes of exclusion. And it's our role, I think, as professors to try and understand that the real life of what's happening outside has always seeped into our students' lives but it seeps into it in a more prescient way right now because these students, a lot of them, they can no longer escape their reality, right? So now we're at an intersection of the stressors of the things that we need from them in order to get a better education for social mobility so that they can fight this oppression in a place where they may not be able to have the tools in order to do that. And, you know, I think that it's up to institutions to bolster their faculty so that they have the tools and resources to then be able to give it to the student population. And, you know, and I, I want to call academic institutions on the carpet to say that we're in a moment where compassion is needed, a real look of understanding about, you know, the availability of resources is needed, that business as usual when it comes to higher education, 
you know, we cannot approach this, like take your syllabus and then just turn it online, that there's a completely different mode that has to take into account the fact that there is an unequal match that gets, again, exacerbated when you're in the home as opposed to a more equalizing kind of community when you're on campus. I think sometimes we think about kind of health disparities over here and students kind of sense of who they are and how they might engage with the world is over there and logistics about how they're going to kind of get by and get through their education and get a job and move forward are kind of in another box. And I think that this could be a moment for really understanding that those things are not necessarily separable, that we have to understand the health experiences that we have are themselves inextricable from the political and social experiences that we have and are inseparable from the logistics of how we live our lives. I think that there's a lot of really excellent public health and global health researchers who've done work on this. I think about the work of Nancy Krieger and her colleagues talking about how we really have to understand health inequalities as the accumulated insults of living in a racist society. It's not just like, oh, okay, here's one little health impact or one little housing characteristic or one little tick on um, where you fall in an income score or one um, kind of unpleasant encounter with a professor or one scary encounter with a police officer. It's not just one of these things, right? Where it's the students and other people who are living in society are going through a situation in which these insults accumulate and they have an impact that is much more holistic than I think that we've given credit for. You know, so the decolonization of the curriculum can't just be an intellectual exercise. I mean, I think one of the things that a lot of Native people in the United States have emphasized is that decolonization has to be linked to the returning of land. So don't tell me you're decolonizing the curriculum if you're not giving me land. That might play out differently here in the metropolitan United Kingdom, but I do think that, you know, don't tell me you're decolonizing health if you're not giving me my body back right? Like if you're not like kind of ceding terrain over control of bodies, then you're not really decolonizing, right? If it's just an intellectual exercise that doesn't impact the way that our students actually live in the whole world from their housing to their commute to the classroom experience and beyond, then we're not really decolonizing it and we're not really fostering their health or their ability to be the kind of global health professionals that we imagine that they might become someday. A big thank you to Professor Anne Pollock of King's College London and Dr. Melissa Creary of the University of Michigan. As Anne and Melissa said, this COVID-19 moment perhaps presents a unique opportunity to see how clearly our health experiences are directly connected to the political and social experiences we have. The killing of George Floyd is just another one of those experiences. A moment in which communities of colour recognise a disregard for black life a disregard magnified by the inequalities so clearly on show during this pandemic. Yet these issues are not simply ones just for the United States alone. We have seen here in the UK the disproportionate impact of COVID-19 on black and minority ethnic communities. In part two, we speak about the UK as we sit down with two former King's students who are working to raise awareness of the impacts of health on marginalised communities. We discuss the government's response to COVID-19 and why the health inequalities faced by communities of colour started long before this pandemic. You've been listening to the podcast World We Got This, brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. To find out more about the podcast and our work, 
head to our website, kcl.ac.uk forward slash world we got this. Here you'll find a full list of further reading materials. This podcast has been produced by James Bagley and Julia Stepawoska, with editing by Rachel Wall. To help us reach more people, please rate and review us in iTunes, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, remember, world, we got this.